Uh, you've heard Matt say that we're going to be looking at Jephthah. Can, uh, can I ask you to turn, if you're looking in the Pew Bibles, to page 199, Judges chapter 10. And if you're not uh, using the Pew Bible, then whatever it is you're using, it's a great encouragement to the, to the team here preaching when they see you looking at the Word. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a great encouragement. Judges chapter 10, verse 6. Again, the Israelites did, the e did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashereths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they, they, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We've sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods. So I no longer save I will no longer save you. Go and cry to the gods that you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do what with us whatever you think is best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped in Mizpah. The leader of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the, the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over uh, all who live in Gilead. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Beginning that I love stories of heroism. And uh, in 1999, a funeral service took place for a fellow called David Wallace. He was a truck driver from a small rural community in northern New South Wales. The obituary in the local newspaper described him as the bravest man in the world. As a highlight of the school holiday break, David's 11-year-old son went with him on a trip to Brisbane carrying timber. However, on the road, tragedy struck. It's a terrible tragedy. David's truck swerved to miss an oncoming car, rolled down an embankment and burst into flames. Both David and his son were trapped in the truck cab. When their rescuers arrived, they heard the cries of the boy. 
They found that David had laid himself over his son to protect him from the fire. His son, though needing medical uh, hospital treatment, survived. We can say David Wallace died putting himself between his son and the flames. A loving father who died a hero. A father who sacrificed his life to save his son. Today in the story of Jephthah, we find a very different type of father. But firstly, Israel, in that passage that was read to you, notice that we have insincere repentance. It's like, here we go again, Israel. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You've had that passage read to you. Confrontation between Israel and their God, Yahweh. And the people have moved a long way from God, and they did evil again, we're here. But now not only serving the Baals and Asherahs, they're now serving seven other foreign gods that are mentioned in that passage. They serve the Baals and the Asherahs and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the Moab, Ammonites, Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord, no longer served him, he became angry with them. So they were then oppressed for 18 years. And I love the fact that they cry out to God for help, but God's had enough. I love the way the Bible describes it. It's almost as if God is saying, go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you. And that's what he says. There's a sense of divine humor and sarcasm in the voice of God. Here you go again. Come on, guys. Just, you know, you call out to these gods. I saved you once. You didn't listen. You're still not listening. Go and call upon them. Go ask Asherah to save you. Go ask Baal to save you. Go ask the gods of uh, the other places. I've had enough. But the people, they're like most of us. You know, you've done the wrong thing and you think, I'm still going to ask for, for dad's uh, help, for God, dad's forgiveness, for dad's grace. You've done the wrong thing, or to mum, and you think, oh, I don't know, they love me. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep pestering them until they give in. They said, oh, Lord, we know. We've sinned. Do with us whatever you think, but please rescue us now. They're not stopping. They're still going back to Yahweh. Then they got rid of the foreign god and among them, and they served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. That expression, he could bear Israel's misery no longer, says something like this. Literally, his soul or his person was short because of the efforts of Israel. Expresses God's frustration, his exasperation, and an anger in the face of an intolerable situation. What's wrong with you guys? How many times do I have to forgive you? And we notice that God is silent at the end of this section. God doesn't say he's going to do anything. They keep pestering God. We're going to God because he's our only hope. He doesn't say he'll do anything. Friends, in application of this first point, let me just say that there is such a thing as righteous anger. You know, not uh, simply anger where you just get upset at someone and you fly off the handle and, uh, you're, you know, they've offended you in some way, they've, you know, you're hurt in your character and so on. No, no, this is God seeing sinfulness and being genuinely angry at such unholiness. It's righteous anger. It's informed, it's purposeful, it's perceptive, it's focused anger. God is angry with his people. And as humans, we often think that we can hide our sinfulness from other people. We sometimes do, but we can't hide it from God. You can't play with God. God knows what's happening in your life, how you're behaving, how you're speaking, how you're living, and God doesn't like our sin. Sees your heart, sees your behavior. And so you can't manipulate God. It doesn't matter what you say. And uh, they were saying, oh, no, get rid of the gods. Get rid of the gods quickly. Maybe God will listen to us. 
Maybe we can manipulate God into loving us again and forgiving us. Let's just throw out our gods. It's like people saying, God, if you get me out of this mess every week, or God, if my girlfriend agrees to marry me, I'll follow you. Or if you save me from this financial mess, I'll give up my adulterous relationship. People are trying to manipulate God. God, if you do this, I'll do this for you. It's insincere. God desires true repentance. And God looks at his people and he knows they are not faithful to him. It happens to us too. I, I remember when I was at teacher's college training to be a mathematics teacher. That were the old days, right? And uh, there was a, and I shared this story in the morning service the other day. There were some mature age students in, in my class. And Salvation Army background, and she used to go to Salvation Army, hadn't been there for ages. And uh, she was living far from Jesus. We were about 18 or 19. She was probably, she was really old, about 25, I think, maybe 28, whatever it was, mature age student. We felt like she was ancient, but she was probably five years older than us. And she came in one day, because she knew I was a Christian, I was involved with a Christian group on campus. I said, Ann, Jen, I want to tell you something. I said, what is it? I said, I gave my life to Jesus last night. I said, wow, what happened? So I went to an outreach event and they showed a movie called A Thief in the Night. And that's, it's about the end of the world and the judgment of the world. It talks about Christians getting sucked off the earth in the rapture and judgment's coming on everyone else. And she got scared into becoming a Christian, right? For her, it was like, oh, I have to be ready. I don't want to go to hell. I want to know Jesus. And I was a bit worried because when she described not the love of God that drew her, but fear that drew her, I was wondering whether it will last. Sadly... Although she had called out to God, within a few weeks, she was no longer following Christ. Israel is like that. We're with you, God. We'll do everything. We'll throw out the gods. But then we start serving them again. And secondly, we come to Jephthah's rise to greatness. Now, the Ammonites, they were ready for a war, while Israel had no one to lead them, they said. So the leaders this time went out to find a judge. You notice in Jephthah, God is not giving them the judge. They're looking for the judge. So already you know that God's not the one who's initiating what is taking place here. He is chosen by the people because they know about him. So Jephthah the Gilead was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. When they had grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers, settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Mother's a prostitute, he has no legal rights, they kick him out of the family home. The guy gets connected with a gang. I love the word scoundrels. Well, it's, it's a criminal underworld, right? It's uh, literally a gang, empty men. People have no real purpose, they're violent, they just gang together. But he has developed a powerful reputation. He's a Gileadite renegade, he's an outlaw. And clearly they know about him. Everyone's, oh, not Gilead, not, you know. Jephthah and his mates again, they're dangerous, stay away from these guys. Like I was growing up in Marrickville, I tell you, there's certain streets I wouldn't visit late at night, the gangs were there. It was the Leb gang, it was the Greek gang, it was the Maso gang, it was the Vietnamese gang. You knew where not to turn up. Here, they know this guy. And sometime later when the Ammonites made war on Israel, we're just continuing through the text because it's going to take us through the end of chapter 11. Uh, The elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, be our commander. So we can fight the Ammonites. They're going to the criminal underworld to get their leader. That's where they're going. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now? 
when you're in trouble. They try to manipulate God and now they're trying to use someone they didn't like to fulfill their purposes. Nevertheless, they said, we are now turning to you. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you'll be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. Bring God's name in again. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them and he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So God gets mentioned quite a bit. They said before the Lord, before the Lord, before the Lord. Although the Lord has not not chosen him, the people have. Was Jephthah committed to God? Was he genuine? He kept using the Lord's name. Like Christian, well, I know God, I go to church, I'm a Baptist or I'm an Anglican or a Pentecostal or whatever it happens to be. Use the name of God. One writer says, we can't be sure, he says, his words do express some sense of personal dependence on God. He mentions Yahweh's name. He wants his position to be constitutionally ratified in a proper manner with the Lord at the heart of it. Some, another writer says, though, Jephthah is willing to do anything in order to seize power and to maintain that power and status. He wants so desperately to be restored and accepted to be the head that he will do anything and deal with anyone, including the unscrupulous elders, in order to achieve his goals. The elders and Jephthah deserve one another. Selfish ambition drives them all, says Lawson Younger. Hard to tell. I'd probably go with the second one myself. He's in the criminal underworld. Uh, he's trouble. He has an opportunity now to be a leader, to lead the people. Well, friends, in our society today, if we apply this, I think people are trying to get ahead by lying, by slander, by manipulation. We see it in election campaigns. I don't believe anything I hear in an election campaign. What about you? Either side. I think they're all making it up. They're all slanting it a certain way to get their own way. It happens, sadly, in theological and Bible colleges. happens in churches. happens in Christian ministries. Where people will lie or people will slander, people will condemn to get their way to get ahead. I remember um, when I was at Asheville Baptist Church, I was a student pastor there, and um, I was new to the church, or before I was a student pastor, in fact, and because the church had known me, I used to preach around the place at a, through a scripture union, and uh, very early on, they asked me to preach. So I'm the new guy, right? So there's some other young adults in the church. There's one other guy who had a bit of power, who liked to be the guy up front preaching, and this new upstart, I just came up, sat up the back, within a couple of weeks, I was up the front preaching. Now, that really upset some people, right? Okay, it really upset some people, especially the ones going, oh, come that guy's preaching, man. He doesn't seem very spiritual. Doesn't seem like he has many gifts. Sitting quietly up the back, right? He has no idea what I've done in the past, where I've served, or what I've done. So I preach, and then he starts telling other people, so I'm not sure about that Ange guy, I can't trust him. It's not the first person who said that about me. Can't trust him. I'm not too sure. You know, he doesn't seem very spiritual. And he's up, up the front preaching with passion and interest and he's trying to change lives. And how do I know that? Because a few months later, he told me. He was honest enough to confess and said, Ange, I just want to apologize. When you first came, I just, I judged you. I condemned you. I put you down. And really, friends, the reason why he was doing that because he wanted to be the head honcho, young adult leader. And we must be very careful how we treat one another. We must be very careful to build and encourage, not put down in all of our ministries. One of the most uh, outstanding or surprising uh, examples of seeking power 
uh, was uh, a fellow called Pastor Michael Gugliamucci. Uh, you may remember his story. He released the hit song Healer in 2008, a few years back now. It was on Hillsong's album. And on Hillsong's album, uh, supposedly he had a battle with terminal cancer. And uh, for two years he claimed to be terminally ill, though he wasn't. His wife didn't know that it was all made up. Hillsong didn't know. None of the musicians knew, but he created a story that he was dying. And his performance on live Hillsong DVD attracted, uh, back then, 300,000 hits on YouTube, and he was showing him singing with an oxygen tube up his nose because he was dying of cancer. It was all a lie. He wasn't dying of cancer at all. He said later, I read some later stories, that he was struggling with pornography addiction and it's the way he was trying to deal with whatever was going on in his messed up brain at that stage. For two years, lying, deceiving. Now that's extreme, right? <laughs> that's pretty extreme, pretty messed up and he's had help and counselling since then and just read he was about to start a ministry to the inner city poor in Adelaide uh, over the next period of time and I pray that God has been at work at him in him. But it's a real danger to want to excel and succeed for your own benefit. Jesus uh, well, the, taught us the, the way of humility. And Philippians 2, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Thirdly, Jephthah's victory and tragedy. Now, he does, Jephthah does well. He starts well. He confronts the Ammonite king in chapter 11, verses uh, 11 to 28. There's a whole episode description. I'm not going to read all of that. But pretty much, um, he's the type of guy who doesn't shoot first and ask questions later. I was going to say, not like the American police force, but I won't say that. Right. He uses diplomacy. Violence is his last resort. He tries to sort it out. You know, not like the mess that ended up in Iraq after lack of diplomacy. Jephthah sent messages to the Ammonite king with the questions, what do you have against us that you have attacked our country? He said, okay, he's trying to sort it out. Let's not go to war. The Ammonite king responded. Uh, he answered his messengers. When Israel came, came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from Arnon to Jabok all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. And Jephthah, in that passage, if you read it, he says, no, well, we never took it from you. You never had it. We took it from someone else. And by the way, we've had it for 300 years without protesting. Why are you coming to taking our land now? He says, I've not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. His peace negotiations failed. King of Ammon paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then in 29 and 33, you have the victory. God gets involved. Uh, we see God involved here. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. God is now going to intervene in the story. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed from Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And verse 30, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Oh, no, bad story. He's doing well for a moment. He made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph, from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. If you know the end of the story, you know that's not a good vow. 
It's a tragic, devastating vow. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. The Lord gives them into his hands that in the middle of God's working, he's made a really stupid vow. It's unnecessary. It's, in a sense, he's trying to twist God's hand. God, I will give you. If you give me the victory, I'll just give you whoever comes or whatever comes out of my house. Why did he make it? He wants to win. He wants to look good. He will do whatever it takes to go from being the son of the prostitute, the one who's kicked out of the family, the one who's hanging around with gangs, to be the leader and to have a reputation like nothing else. He's going to, in a sense, say to all those who rejected him, look at me now. But when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, verse 34, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of the tambourines? Now, often when someone came home from a military victory, people would come out before your family would welcome you and they'd sing and dance. His daughter comes out. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. Make it very clear, there's no one else here. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I've made a vow to the Lord and I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you out of your enemies, the Ammonites. A gracious response. But grant me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. He let her go for two months or for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. And she hadn't married. Young girl, probably a teenager. Because at that period of time, that teenager would normally get married, 14, 15 maybe even younger. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gilead. What the hell, excuse me, were you thinking? And what were you thinking, Jephthah, to go through with it? You see, the word of God already says, Deuteronomy 12, 31, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, like the pagans. We're not like them. Because in worshipping their gods, they do all the kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. He says, no, you can't be like the nations. You can't be like the gods of Moab and Sidon. You can't be like the Asherahs and the Baal worshippers. You are my people. Life is precious. You don't take life. You break your vow. Because it's a stupid vow. Inexcusable folly. Shows an immoral contempt for the sanctity of human life. The fifth commandment says do not murder. He accepts the pagan assumption that God can be manipulated by such barbaric gestures. But we know child sacrifice is forbidden. He proudly refused to accept responsibility for his mistake and revoke his vow. He says, oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable. You have made me miserable. I mean, you have made me miserable. I'm the idiot who made myself miserable. 
you've made me miserable and wretched because I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Even in that final moments, she's caused it. Why did you come out of the house? Friends, the normal expectation would be that, if you weren't aware, most houses in that period of time would also have a room where they'd keep their animals, the goats, the cows, the ducks, whatever they had. And, he, and I think in his mind, he's saying, God, whatever comes out, I'll sacrifice to you. Like they would often offer animal sacrifices. But he didn't think that his daughter might come up. He should have thought that. But he was too keen on winning, too keen on victory, too keen on looking good in front of everyone else that he killed his daughter. Friends, don't try to manipulate God. Remember Jesus on the way to the cross that said, not my will but yours be done. And if you're going to pray, you want to seek to serve God and do whatever it is for him and for his glory, always keep in mind that God is sovereign. God is at work. Trust him with his plans and his purposes. Trust that God can even work through tough times to make you more like Jesus. Lawson Younger, one of the commentators I've used, writes, the tragedy of this passage is repeated again and again in our modern society. Hurt people hurt people. Jephthah came from a dysfunctional background he was an illegitimate son born of a prostitute, rejected and disinherited by his family, leader of a gang. He became a man who was hurt, angry, bitter, ambition-driven, ready to fight, manipulative, ignorant of God's law, abusive of his daughter, lacking in boundaries, contentious, emotionally reactionary, revengeful, and doing what is right in his own eyes for his own gain. He made his daughter responsible, blaming her for the disaster that he would inflict on her, making himself the victim of a rash vow. In many ways, this nameless daughter represents all the courageous daughters of abusive fathers. Jephthah performs on her the ultimate abuse for killing one's own child is the worst form of murder. Can people like Jephthah change? Can God take broken people who've committed terrible sins and transform them and make them new? Yes, he can. A mate of mine visits a prison in Sydney. I think it's at Windsor, in fact. I said, who do you visit? There's a guy there who's a gang member uh, of an Eastern European gang. I said, when he was arrested, uh, they put him in a remand center and he picked up a Bible in the remand center and started to read it. He couldn't understand the Bible at all. And so when they ended up putting him into prison, um, he went to the chaplain went to a chaplain and said, can you teach me the Bible and knowing God? And uh, a chaplain got alongside him, started to read the Bible with him, and this guy came to faith. And somehow uh, my mate happened to know the chaplain, and he got invited in, and started to write this guy, have conversation. And uh, this guy, who used to be the standover man in a gang, Eastern European gang, is now running chapel services. He's now talking about the love of God and the forgiveness of God. He's now witnessing to some of the toughest prisoners in that place. He's now, he's now also doing an online course through Morling College, studying theology from the prison, so he can be better equipped to serve others. My mate goes into the prison once a month. I said, mate, you're 85. Kel, what are you doing, mate? Take it easy. He said, no, no better place to go to see these guys, the change that God has brought to their hearts, because he's not the only one. I turn up, and he waits, and he gives me a big hug as I arrive. 
So good to see you, Kel. Come in. And he said, there's a line of guys, former thugs, former immoral people, who were far from God, changed by God. And they line up to hug him and say, thanks for coming. God changes lives. But the end of the story here, it doesn't go any better. There's disunity and violence in the nation. You can read about that, chapter 12, 1 to 7. There are arguments between the guys in Ephraim and Gilead. Why didn't you sort of ask for help and so on? Why couldn't we fight with you, etc., etc.? And so they're now fighting one another. You think, is it just going to keep ending like this? It's going to keep ending like this. Well, let me say, the uh, book of Genesis, chapter 12, 1 to 3 says that God promises Abraham there'll be a great nation. They'll be in the promised land. They'll bring blessing to all nations. The sinfulness of people will not stop God's plan. God will fulfill his purposes. And that plan culminates in the coming of Jesus, the great redeemer and deliverer. God's grace in action. And friends, we're going to remember the climax of the story during communion today. And I'll stop there. I've said enough. Amen.